This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so let's get to that, folks. Uh, To date, AmeriCares has delivered six tons of protective supplies for the COVID-19 pandemic, and more international and domestic shipments are planned. The company works with more than 4,000 health centers around the globe. Dr. Julie um, Verhees, forgive me, I just want to make sure I had that right. Julie Verhees, she is chief medical officer at AmeriCares, and she joins us on the phone from Chicago. Um, Dr. Farhees, nice to have you here with us. Fast and furious, where are we in terms of those protective supplies for our healthcare workers? Thank you so much for having me. Um, as we've seen, we are having significant challenges in terms of sourcing protective equipment for healthcare workers on the front lines. Um, you know, at AmeriCares, we have sent shipments of personal protective equipment, particularly in hot zones um, here in the U.S., in Washington State, California, New York, but um, have, similar to other organizations, been having a significant, significant number of challenges in terms of sourcing uh, supplies that are so critically needed right now for healthcare workers. I think one of the concerns was, and I certainly saw this over the weekend, Jason, you probably did too, in watching the press conferences between governors and what we got from the coronavirus task force, that there seems to be, you know, is there the flow of equipment? Is the government kind of taking central control of it and making sure that supplies are getting to where they need to go because what we're seeing is price gouging as states try to Mm -hmm. access the needed supplies. Are we getting that coordinated effort that seems to be necessary at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of action that is taking place um, and, and there's a lot of coordination that is happening, but there's still more that's really needed. Um, You know, we are seeing a lot of the individual states taking significant measures, um, but certainly this is a cross-sectoral effort. This is an unprecedented time that we're in. We have not seen these types of shortages in previous outbreaks that um, we've been involved with. And so certainly there is a call for even more action um, and collaboration and coordination amongst uh, the various sectors within government, but also in the private and public sectors as well. And so, Dr. Varhees, help us understand, you know, with this limited amount of protective gear, how does that play through to, you know, what everyday people should be doing in terms of when to go to a hospital, when to go to a clinic, how to sort of deal with with their own stuff in order to not Mm -hmm. uh, sort of weigh too much on the system unnecessarily? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think the general public, you know, I I can't overemphasize enough the importance of social distancing. We're seeing so much of that emphasized in the media, Um, you know, folks really um, being urged to stay at home. Uh, to the best of their ability. Um, You know, certainly there's needs to go out for medical care and groceries, but uh, really trying to stay home as much as possible. And I think that every single person has an important role to play in contributing to slowing down the spread. We're hearing a lot about flattening the curve or slowing down the spread of infection. And so I think implementing social distancing, really focusing on preventative measures like basic hand washing, cough etiquette, Um, not touching your face are so important. And and 
I would say really we're focusing not just on kind of containing the infection, we're focusing on not overwhelming the healthcare system. Well, Dr. Varghese, and and I forgive forgive me, I think I've been mispronouncing your name, so my apologies. But Dr. Varghese, I think that's what I was seeing a lot of questions about over the weekend, where are we getting to a point because of shortage of supplies of this protective Mm -hmm. gear for healthcare workers that um, medical personnel, doctors and others will have to make choices about who they can treat or who they can provide equipment on, whether it's based on age or based on how vulnerable somebody is. I mean, are we getting to that point? I don't think we're quite there yet. But will Um, we get there in a week potentially? It's hard to know exactly what the timeline could be, and I think all of the efforts we're trying to put into place currently, um, both at the state and federal uh, level, are really trying to help decrease the risk of getting there. Uh, certainly, the healthcare system and healthcare workers are already um, quite taxed in terms of the limitations on personal protective equipment and, and other types of equipment, but we're really trying to help slow down the spread and, and how fast we may find ourselves in that type of situation like we're seeing at, you know, in Italy and other places. And Dr. Varghese, what are we learning about, uh, especially as we think about the biggest cities uh, in the country, and you are there in Chicago, one of them, you know, we've seen these restrictive measures, the essential shelter in place, even if we're not calling it that in all these different places in California, here in New York, uh, and also in Illinois, where you are, we're seeing other states take similar uh, measures. What are we seeing in terms of the efficacy of that, or when will we know how effective that is? Yeah. So it's it's hard to know exactly how soon um, because we're seeing varying levels, I'd say, of the whole shelter-in-place concept, but certainly um, just urging people to social distance and to shelter-in-place, I think we can truly slow down the spread. Um, it may take still uh, a week or, or more to really understand how that kind of impacts the next wave of uh, cases and, and how much of an increase or decrease we're seeing in terms of these having these measures in place and the impact in terms of the case counts. I do wonder about underserved populations and whether or not they're getting the necessary care and able to get out there. What are you seeing on that front or what are we doing to make sure that they are taken care of along with everybody else? Yeah, certainly we um, at AmeriCares are concerned about low-income, uninsured, and underinsured individuals and communities. We have clinics, uh, four clinics here in Connecticut. I'm actually located in Connecticut where Ah. um, our AmeriCares headquarters is in. Um, And so we have four free clinics where we are serving low-income, uninsured, and uh, underinsured individuals um, and really trying to maintain primary care services as well. Uh, We have clinics in El Salvador as well as the slum communities of Mumbai. And what we've seen in our previous experience with outbreaks is that while there is a lot of attention and resources put behind containment of uh, the spread of infection, there's also a need for continuation of services, especially primary care services. We saw this in Ebola where, you know, people were dying of their chronic disease, such as hypertension or diabetes, because there weren't enough resources and access to services for their chronic care conditions. And so um, as an organization, we've really tried to, uh, to the best of our ability, keeping in mind the safety of our healthcare workers on the front line, continue those primary care services in addition to the screening and referrals that we're doing for COVID-19. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Julie Varghese is Chief Medical Officer for AmeriCares, joining us on the phone from 
Connecticut. Some good information there and a reminder that ultimately, Carolyn, you tweeted something to this effect earlier. It's a healthcare crisis. You know, we talk a lot about the markets and the financial world, but this is very, very much a healthcare crisis and one that uh, yeah. a lot of doctors are trying to deal with uh, trickier and trickier. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get down to D.C. now. Josh Wingrove is there, White House correspondent for Bloomberg. Great story today on the terminal, as we mentioned, about where the president's head may be on this stay-at-home advice that we've so many of us have been given. Josh, great to have you back with Carol and myself. Tell us uh, what the president's thinking right now. Um, it's hard to say. <laughs> he is in the mind that there is some sort of way to have your cake and eat it, too, that you can signal to Americans that, you know, it's dawn again, we're getting through this. Um, you can start, you know, stepping back a bit from the measures that we've all started taking in the last while. Um, but health officials are going to push back on that and say, we are not out of the woods yet. For instance, the caseloads are still rising. We have no idea when the when they will plateau in terms of new cases. Uh, the deaths, of course, continue to rise. America has a shortage of testing and of medical supplies to treat it, everything from masks to hospital beds and ventilators. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, clouds on the horizon. And it, it, would be, it seems like a weird time for him to be preparing to sort of declare victory and start coming back uh, towards a more normal life. Yeah, safe to say that I think most people believe that too, Josh, um, that all of a sudden that's that's kind of the thinking. I think crucial to this, right, is that health side of the story in that, you know, if you've had the virus, you know, don't we need to have some testing to see if you've built up some immunity to it so that you can go back? Because I think the fear is also, I feel like we were talking so much last week about the second wave as we start to go back. I think there's been some concerns about that happening in China uh, and elsewhere. So, <laughs> are we thinking at all about that? It's a, it, it's a good question. I mean, not really, because we don't really have the capacity to test people yeah. in that regard. I mean, you know, for, like I, I like to think of like if we want to think of workspaces. Let's think of like the NBA, right? Like if they wanted to start playing basketball again, they would have to test every team and the, and the referees and coaches right. every game, and they right. just don't, they just don't have that. And so you start to scale that, and that's even what? What would that be, 30 people maybe, you know, or so to by bare minimum to run a game in an empty arena? Scale that to like a big company, big employer. What do you do, right? One person coming back could potentially carry it. One, you know, you just, you, you have no idea. So I think Trump, there is a clear movement in the last 24 hours among Trump and the people uh, he listens to to say that the economy can't, to be on the mat all that longer. Uh, you've got to give some sort of signal, even if it is only a signal, that things will start moving back to normal life at some point. Uh, and the, the, the inflection point to do that is in one week. That's when Trump's 15 days tops to stop the spread strategy expires next Monday or so. Um, but health officials say, look, if we don't have a handle on the outbreak, uh, reopening things is only going to make it worse. Right. Well, and it's clear, and and this has been 
not, I was going to say it's been nuanced. It actually hasn't been that nuanced. You know, when you see Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks uh, up there, you know, sort of gently correcting the record sometimes at these briefings. And, you know, it's interesting, Josh, too. I read something this morning that essentially said part of this is because these briefings every day have become, I dare say, political to to a large extent confrontational with with the media they are not necessarily just delivering the latest and greatest when it comes to the medical outlook right um yeah they're they're the length of like an 80s comedy every day i mean we're there forever um tonight god knows how long it will last we'll see um but you know for media the white house doesn't provide a lot of information that briefing is the only way to ask basic things like how many masks do we have? Right. What is the caseload? Do we have ventilators? Arguably, we shouldn't be wasting national airtime asking the president for the numbers themselves. Uh, but, you know, this is our only opportunity to. So, you know, I, I think Trump is out there every day. He's uh, he's trying to look like he's leading on that. His, uh, his sort of orbit is touting elevated uh, approval numbers and his handling of this. But we are not out of the woods yet, absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, that's for sure. Um, Josh, really appreciate uh, all your efforts and all your reporting, and thanks for finding time for us. Josh Wingrove uh, joining us uh, from Washington. One of the most read and one of the most read guys. It's just true. Joe Nocera, he joins us on the phone from Southampton. We're going to set that aside for a second because then we would just go down the rabbit hole, the shrink next door, and we'll <laughs> save that for uh, another day. Joe, uh, Joe Weber also with us. Uh, he is in Brooklyn. That's where we're finding him these days. So, Nocera, I want to start with you. Uh, this is a provocative look to some extent about what could happen uh, down the line as it relates to vaccines and basically forcing people or, or forcing an issue, I should say. Tell us what you found. Well, well, I, I just I, I went back and looked at what happened um, <clears throat> during swine flu. That, that was my idea. Uh, you know, Excuse me. What what sort of measures were the were state governments able to take um, to to kind of get people past that? And one of the things that I discovered was that in the state of New York, the health the head of the health department had ordered um, all healthcare workers to take the vaccine uh, under the threat of being fired if they didn't do it by the you know like they were given like a month and a half to do it. And what happened was. Um, you know, they got sued by some uh, by some nurses and by um, uh, a, a union, a, a workers union, and um, <laughs> the judge ordered a stay. So, in other words, the, the judge said you can't do this, and I'll you know then I'll rule on the merits later. And and in the meantime, the vaccine turned out to be in such short supply that the governor, Governor Patterson at the time, decided it was pointless to try and enforce this, and so they just kind of gave up. So what it means is that if and when there is a vaccine, we really don't know legally what rights people, and particularly health workers, are going to have in dealing with this. And I can guarantee you that if somebody tries to enforce a vaccine, with the anti-vax movement being yeah. what it is today, uh, there will be an uproar and there will be a lot of litigation. Joe, so, you know, over to you. you. Over to you. Come yeah. on, come on in, Joel. Yeah. 
Well, that's why, Joe, what was the name of the case? Because it is one that I think is going to be in the headlines um, if and when there's a vaccine. You would have to ask me that. I know. It's (laughs) Binion Binion versus Danes. And what I I actually thought was remarkable. What, what I thought was remarkable about this little bit of um, sleuthing on Joe's part was that we've actually been down this road before, right? Like we've been, we've seen like the swine, swine flu at the time, that was a pandemic. And there were a lot of people who got sick and here we were racing out, um, a, a, you know, a vaccine. And one of the elements that the, I think is important to keep in mind here was that the healthcare workers said, we don't want to be guinea pigs in this case. And right. that was actually what one of the one of the things that the judge um, cited in when he decided on the stay. Um, so right. so Joe, when you kind of when you when you think about this, like New, New York State was where this case was centered. Um, and, and it will be probably a state issue before it's anything else. Is that not right? Oh, without without question, it will. I, I mean, especially given how lax the federal government's been in dealing with this pandemic. It will definitely be a state issue. You can definitely see Cuomo saying you have to do this, and you can definitely see enormous pushback from um, – and, and, and by the way, the same thing's happening here in terms of the vaccine itself. You know, everybody's talking about we've got to rush the vaccine out. We've got to rush the vaccine out. Right. Vaccines usually take a year and a half to two years. Right, exactly. Well, and I also think about the bigger worker issue, especially with some of the conversation, you know, that we heard just from our Josh Wingrove, who covers uh, the White House and Washington, you know, about the president talking already about people, workers getting back to work. And you do wonder, you know, could we get to a point where, okay, if you want to go back to work, you have to get this vaccine. And if you don't take it, like, it just opens up all these weird questions, Joe. Right, right. Absolutely. And that's true. You know, there's another vaccine uh, uh, people are trying to a hold of, excuse me, another test. It's an antibody test. It's yes. actually supposed to be fairly close. And the, the, the importance of the antibody test is that it can tell you if you're immune. Mm. So, so you can definitely see a situation where the government says you have to take this antibody test right. because uh, we have to know whether you are immune. And if you're immune, you've got to go back to work or you've got to go, you know, you've got to be part of the economy again. So, uh, you know, you could see the same set of issues. It's not quite the same as a vaccine, but you could definitely see the same set of issues there. Yeah. Well, and guys, I do wonder, and, and Joe, I would love for you to weigh in on this as well. I mean, we are in this moment where it feels like in the name of public health, public safety, our own and those of our communities and whatnot, maybe, you know, we're starting to think about some very basic, you know, rights and and what we can and can't do in sort of a different way. And, you know, if you spend too long on Twitter, you can go down some rabbit holes about what the government (laughs) can and and can't do here, right? Well, you know, to some extent, I think think about like 9-11, right? You think about what a tailspin um, that put our society for for, you know, a decade plus in terms of civil liberties. And, and in some, to some extent, like we might be entering a similar phase here, which will test our social fabric. Right. And just putting on well, an economic. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Joe. Well, I, wanted, to, go I ahead. wanted to come at it from a different from a different angle. You know, when the polio virus came out, uh, I was a little kid and I remember my mother taking me to get a polio shot. And that was not that was not. That was mandatory. Everybody yeah. in the country had to take a polio shot. Nobody complained about it because everybody was so terrified, yeah. terrified about polio. 
And so what I think is that we could see an era where we go back to that, where if this virus is bad enough, you could see the court upholding uh, a government saying you have to do this for the greater good. And I feel like the greater good is something that's kind of been forgotten the last couple of decades. And, you know, however you feel about mandatory vaccines, working on behalf of the greater good is something the society really needs to recapture. Yeah, no, I, it, it's a great point, and, and certainly it's something uh, that we have been talking more and more about. I mean, social distancing really only, you know, if like only a couple people are social distancing themselves, then it really uh, it, it doesn't work so well. All right, Jono, Sarah, always thought provocative. Thank you so much. Joining us on the phone from Southampton, New York. Joe Weber joining us on the phone from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Now, we often talk about this with our Andy Brown about globalization and the factors that have been shipping away at it. One factor to consider is the virus and how it might ultimately kill globalization. Andy Brown is Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director. He's on the phone in New Hampshire. Andy, good to have you back with us. First of all, you guys all doing okay? We're doing great up here in. Uh in New Hampshire. Actually, it's a terrific part of the U.S. to be in right now. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about, because as we watch the rest of the world, um, you know, it's really certainly tough going. You have talked to us in the past about the things that are really chipping away at globalization. This virus, we have seen a lot of fighting, certainly it feels like, or tensions between the U.S. and China as a result of you know, kind of finger-pointing at who caused it. Um, talk to us, though, about the broader implications potentially for globalization. Yeah, so, so you know, the, the, the way I look at it is, you know, ultimately globalization, uh, economic globalization, depends on trust. That, you know, essentially you've got these incredibly long and complex supply chains, many of them running through China, and companies and countries have got to believe in the integrity of those chains. Um, and they haven't really been tested in the last several decades that much. I mean, you had episodes, for instance, in 2011. You had floods in Thailand. You had an earthquake and tsunami in Japan. And parts of the electronic supply chain came down. And now you have massive global failures of supply chains. And, you know, not just that, you have, you know, this uh, simultaneous erosion of trust between the big actors in the globalization drama. So, you know, uh, most notably uh, and most disastrously right now between the U.S. and China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, we're seeing that in uh, medicines, in pharmaceuticals where it's become clear that the U.S. economy is highly dependent, and many would argue dangerously dependent, on China. And indeed, we've had insinuations from the Chinese media that, you know, what would happen if China denied, you know, active pharmaceutical ingredients to the U.S. industry. And this has really raised red flags uh, here in the U.S., you know, is the U.S., has the U.S. become too reliant on China? But you're also seeing it in, in Europe with borders going up, with, mm. with uh, you know, Germany, France, 
accusing uh, each other of hoarding face masks, Italy begging in vain for help for, for emergency equipment you know, from the neighbors and in the end having to look to China for help. And China is seeing all this, by the way, and really trying to take advantage of it. Well, and and obviously the political rhetoric is really escalating too, uh, Andy. You know, it, I was listening to something this morning that was talking about even the way that the president of the United States is framing this. You know, continuing to refer to it as the Chinese virus and the this relationship that's always been complicated, to say the least, between him and President Xi, getting more complicated uh, in a lot of ways now. How does that contribute to the overall ethos here? Yeah, so, you know, what's what's so tragic, we talked about this last week, is, is right now the U.S. and China ought to be collaborating yeah. on everything, on the search for a vaccine. They ought to be working together on the manufacture of face masks, of ventilators, of gowns, on, 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 and distribution of all of this, this, this emergency gear, which hospitals right now in the U.S. so desperately need. And in fact, this coronavirus has just opened up a whole new battleground, battlefront yeah. between them. And, and Steve Bannon was quoted in the New York Times today saying, you know, we are now in an information hot war. Uh, in addition to an economic hot war, by which he meant that, you know, the narrative around uh, the coronavirus, where did it, where did it begin? You know, who's to blame? Um, has become now, you know, a, a deeply contested area uh, between these two countries, and they're using it in order to gain geopolitical influence and leverage. Andy, ask you to be quick, just got about 30 seconds, but as the horse left the barn, I mean, could someone else fix the situation, maybe somebody else in the next administration, or is this how it's going to be between the U.S. and China going forward? Just quickly, if you could. Uh, well, I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, U.S.-China relations uh, in this country, in the United States, are very much a bipartisan yeah. issue. Uh, that it's not at all clear that a Democrat, Democratic president would, um, you know, would, would alter course. I don't, however, think that a Democratic president or indeed perhaps any other president would go to the lengths that, that uh, Donald Trump does right now in deliberately fanning mistrust, yeah. Yeah. in deliberately infuriating China by calling it the Chinese virus and Pompeo calling it the Wuhan virus, which, right. by the way, leads to a terrible backlash against Asian Americans in the United States. Yeah. All right. Andy Brown, always good to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Editorial Director of the New Economy here at Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close. Charlie Bobrinskoy is back with us, Vice Chairman, Vice Chairman and Head of Investment Group at uh, Errol Investments. They've got roughly $13.2 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone in Chicago. Charlie, really nice to have you with us. Tell us, um, first of all, I hope you, your family, your team, everybody's doing okay. Uh, yes, they are. I'm spending a lot of time with my family. So. <laughs> <laughs> with all How's yeah. that going? No, I'm just kidding. Um, what is it like in Chicago, Charlie? You know, I mean, that we're so focused, you know, being here in New York and sort of what it's like here. But, you know, your governor, J.B. Pritzker, has, has made some similar steps to, to ours in terms of, you know, really locking things down. It's an interesting question. I think um, the coasts have been hit much harder in terms of actual cases, impact on hospitals. Obviously, New York, Washington State, and California account for the majority of the cases and deaths. And we are seeing some activity in the Midwest. Uh, This is more concentrated in cities, but in general, very little impact. So this is one of those situations where there are obviously a lot of farmers, a lot of rural areas in the middle of the country that are frankly not affected on a daily basis. So Charlie, when you... when you hear what's coming out of Washington, what you've seen the Fed do at this point, um, and what you're seeing, obviously, in Chicago in terms of the impact uh, and, and just the impact on global markets overall, I mean, do you agree with the steps that have been taken so far? And what do you think Congress needs to do? You know, obviously, there are, are people that are more knowledgeable than I am. But uh, clearly, Governor Cuomo said something today, which I think a lot of us agree with, and which the Washington, the Wall Street Journal editorial page has said, which is that This is having a big effect on the economy, and it is not good for the health care and the health of our citizens to have an imploded economy. And So there are going to be times in the future, not tomorrow, but when we have to get back to work, and that's going to be done in a prudent way. It's going to be done um, when it is not going to endanger our citizens, but it is going to need to happen because we cannot have all of us staying home and... um, an imploded economy is not good for anybody. And so, Charlie, uh, put on your investment uh, hat here. As you talk to the team, uh, what what are you guys thinking about in terms of where where the market is trading uh, at this point and, and how you approach this uh, as savvy investors? So what we do is try not to look at the market as a whole, but look at individual companies. And mm-hmm. the basic analysis is, Try to find names that are going to have a very tough time on the short term, because the market always looks at the short term, but are going to be fine in the long term. And one key um, differentiator in that is good balance sheets. If I had to say one thing that the stock market doesn't do particularly well, it's analyze the credit of companies. And so we at Ariel pride ourselves on doing good credit work, investing in companies that are sure going to have a tough quarter, but are going to be fine in the long run. So, so where does that lead you to? I mean, we always talk to you about Tiffany, and as we know, um, you know, LVMH is in the process of, of taking it over. You, you know, sent some notes over, and you said that if LVMH wanted to get out of the deal, they could by claiming a material adverse change. Do you think that's likely? Yeah, so to be very careful, I'm not saying that they would win in the end if, yeah. if they claimed a material adverse change, but they clearly could, if they wanted to get out of the deal, Uh, We saw in 2008 there were a lot of acquisitions that got canceled because of either financing outs or material adverse change outs. And so at this point, I think Tiffany would be able to make the argument that there hasn't been a downturn, a material downturn in their actual results. But I 
again, if, if the leadership of LMVH wanted to, uh, sorry, Louis Vuitton wanted to get out of this deal, I think they'd have a legitimate argument. Now, so far, it doesn't look like they want to get out of this, right. um, but obviously that's why the stock is trading at a significant discount to the deal price. And so uh, take us inside a company or inside your analysis of a company like Tiffany in this uh, particular case. You know, a few months ago we were talking about it's like, oh, you know, maybe they're going to be impacted or they are impacted by Hong Kong protests and the luxury market there and maybe the luxury market in China. This is now a global pandemic. How do you look at a luxury name like that and how does that extend into some of your other analysis? Yeah, so Tiffany is a special case because there's a takeover. But if it was a standalone company. Right. That would be the exact kind of company that we would want to own. There's no doubt that they're going to have a short-term downturn in, in sales. People are not going to be making big luxury purchases. But in the long run, this is not going to affect um, people's desire to own jewelry. And it had a great balance sheet. It had a great brand. All of those things are going to be fine um, whenever we get to the other side of this. And the difference between this downturn and the 2008 downturn in 2008, we really had to worry about whether the whole banking system was going to survive. Right. This time, I think we can all see the other side of this. It's just a question of whether the other side is three months away, six months away, or a year away. Do you think we are at, at or near the peak of bad news? So that's a great question. Uh, it's one we spend a lot of time thinking about because it really is the question when the bad news right now the bad news is coming faster and faster and faster and the number of deaths is accelerating um, but that's going to turn in a relatively short period of time and we think we will reach the pace of bad news is probably right now the worst we're going to actually reach a peak of bad news which is sort of the first derivative um, around we think within less than a month and so Months from now, the bad news is not going to stop. People are still going to be passing away, but we will. the pace of bad news will be better, and people will be more convinced that we can see the other side. And so we think we could start to get a rally in confidence in inside of a month. And in the meantime... Um, I, wait, can I just say, I'm just kind of sitting there with the month, Charlie. <laughs> I saw it. I'm, I'm the only person, Charlie, by the way, in our, in our current setup that can see Carol's face because we're connected uh, by video conference. And I saw it fall when you said uh, inside a month, which, you know, I think is, is hard for people to sort of get their heads around. Do you? Well, I, frankly, there are some people thinking it's going to be a lot more than a month. True, yeah. um, true. So, so I, I yeah. think in, in, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish here. I don't want to tell you everything is going to be fine next yeah. week. I think we're going to – Governor Cuomo is, is seeing the numbers, and he's saying that the hospital's situation is going to get worse. Um, now, I will say this, Carol, to try to brighten your day a little bit. I think <laughs> there's a chance that businesses are going to start to open up yeah. maybe in 11 or 12 days. Um, so it could, be, it could be less than four weeks, but it's not going to be this week. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we always really Thank appreciate you, your insights. So thoughtful. Uh, Charlie yeah, Bobrinskoy is the vice chairman, head of the investment group at Ariel Investments, looking after about $13.2 billion. He joined us on the phone from Chicago. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.